Father, we praise you for the privilege of coming and once again singing the victory of your son, Jesus Christ, standing in the victory of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has shared this victory freely with all who belong to you. We thank you that through his life, death, and resurrection that we can be reconciled to you as your sons and your daughters. We can approach you boldly and confidently knowing that our sin, past, present, and future, has been covered by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So yes, Lord, we rejoice in his victory today. We thank you for all that he is for us. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that we would see your son, Jesus. Show us your heart. Show us who he is through your word today. Help us to see more clearly the beauty of the good news of the gospel. Help it to shape our lives more fully today. And we trust that your word is powerful, that it's effective, that it's always working in us in ways that we may not immediately see, in ways that we may not see or know for years. We can trust that your word is never wasted. So Father, use it today. Through your word, show us your son Jesus today. Help us to hear your voice today. We edify your church and glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth and we submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter seven is where we're gonna be during our time together this morning. If you're our guest, if you're with us for the first time, my name's Taylor Burgess, I serve your cross as lead pastor and honored to have you worshiping here with us today. And just to catch you up to speed a little bit, what our church family's been doing for about six months is we've been working verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. This is widely regarded as Jesus' most famous discourse during his earthly ministry. And so we've been walking this path for the last six months that we've called the Jesus way. Uh, this is his manifesto for the Christian life, what it looks like to be one of his followers in this world. And so um, we're almost six months into this series and friends, we have made it finally to the final chapter, chapter seven. Uh, we're there together and, and we will, Lord willing, be wrapping up the series here in the next um, five, six weeks. So Matthew chapter seven, looking together this morning at verses one through six. There are a number of popular mantras that are very commonly repeated by Christians as if they're timeless biblical truths. But when we take a closer look at them, what we see is that they really aren't biblical at all. You know, one of those mantras, very, very popular that we often hear repeated among Christians is uh, that God won't give you more than you can handle. And yet, if we spend about five minutes either reading our Bibles or just five minutes living in the real world, we very, very quickly learn that God does, in fact, give us more than we can handle. God just never gives us more than he can handle. Another one of these mantras, very, very popular, is that God helps those who help themselves. But the reality is, when we square that up against Scripture and we stare into the gospel message, we find something that's much, much greater. Because Scripture doesn't tell us that God helps those who help themselves. What the gospel tells us is that God has helped those who could not help themselves. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God was rich in mercy and he made us alive together in his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the most popular mantras that's frequently repeated by Christians and non-Christians alike is the claim that the Bible says not to judge. So we see somebody living their life out of step with God's word and we speak a word of correction or we try to demonstrate how certain actions are sinful. And oftentimes the snapback response is, well, that's just your opinion. 
You have no business speaking into this. You shouldn't impose your beliefs on others. Besides, Jesus himself says you're not supposed to judge. But is that what the Bible actually says? Is that what scripture actually says? Are Christians in no way, shape, or form ever to exercise judgment? That's the question we're going to answer this morning from Matthew chapter 7. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the teaching of Jesus on judgment in context. Matthew 7, 1 is often cited as, as sort of a gotcha argument for those who are working to address the sins of others. But what we actually see is this. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus doesn't call us to suspend all judgment. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus calls us to be people who exercise sound judgment. We're called to exercise sound judgment while we address the sins of others and as we do the work of sharing the gospel. While we don't have the ultimate authority to sit in the seat of God and pronounce ultimate condemnation on another person, Jesus does call us to exercise discernment in the ways that we address sin and approach evangelism. So from Matthew chapter 7, let's read once again the words of Jesus, the words of our Savior from Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2. Hear the words of Jesus. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, unfortunately, this is where most people stop reading the passage. Uh, we read that one sentence and then we kind of build a holistic ethic around it. Uh, but, but it's important that we not do that because while Jesus does say this, he goes on to say lots of other stuff too. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Three things Jesus tells us that we should not be doing. Don't be doing these things for Matthew 7. Here's the first. Jesus shows us, don't judge others harshly or you will be harshly judged. Don't judge others harshly or you yourself will be harshly judged. So again, there it is in verse one, judge not. So that, that's it, right? Like we just, we just kind of stop there and we build a whole ethic of, of approaching people based on two words. That's not quite the case. And what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, judge not that you be not judged? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is look at how Jesus uses this term. And the way this, uh, this word is used throughout the New Testament, when you get into the original languages, it's, it should be easy for us to understand because we actually use the word judge or judgment in the same sentence, senses that it's used in Scripture. So the word that Jesus uses for judge, it can, it can mean a couple of different things. It could either mean to analyze or evaluate, or it could mean to condemn or avenge. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, are there times, are there moments, this is like a group participation thing, are there times, are there moments where we are called to analyze or to evaluate and use wise discernment? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. We, we see this in 1 John 4.1. John tells us, he exhorts us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. In just a couple of weeks, we'll see in a similar light when we get down to verse 16 that we can know a tree by its fruit. So as followers of Jesus, yes, we are to exercise judgment in the sense of discerning the actions and the words of others. If someone claims to be a follower of Christ, it's good and right and true of us to examine their lives, to watch the way they're living their lives, to see if their claim of being a follower of Christ is substantiated by what we see in Scripture. And so we're called to exercise wisdom. We're called to exercise judgment and sound judgment and discernment. Beyond that, we see that we are to, to analyze and to discern the words of teachers. Someone proclaims to be someone who's sharing the message of the gospel. It's good and right and true that we would exercise sound judgment. So in that sense, yes, scripture absolutely calls us to judge. 
We're called to discern through the words and actions of others whether or not they're truly in step with Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, uh, it shows us that, that, that we, we've got to be very, very careful in, in how we exercise that, this type of judgment. So even as we're called to analyze and evaluate, we are not called to condemn or avenge. And that's the sense in which Jesus is saying this here. In 1 Corinthians 4, the, the church at Corinth had made some really hasty judgments about the Apostle Paul. You know, it's commonly believed that the Apostle Paul, in spite of his position as an apostle, in spite of his standing and leadership within the early church, it's widely believed about the Apostle Paul that he wasn't a very good public communicator. And so if you were, you know, grading Paul on, on a scale of A to F, like he was probably like a C minus or D plus preacher. Like it apparently just was not very impressive to listen to. And, and so the church in Corinth, they, they'd made a, a harsh judgment against Paul. That they said, well, since this guy's not a very effective communicator, then he really doesn't carry much spiritual authority or influence. And Paul warns them against this type of mentality. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment in the sense of condemnation before the time, before the Lord comes. And this is what the Lord's gonna do. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. While it has been given to Christians to exercise discernment, it has not been given to us as followers of Christ to pronounce condemnation. Only God has the authority to determine our eternal destiny. You know, the reflections of John Stott have been just so helpful over the last six months. I think we've shared some of his reflections five or six times here. And, and this, I thought, just so clearly spoke to this passage this morning. He writes, the command not to judge is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be human by suspending our critical powers, which help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. So again, let's just clarify this. This is not a prohibition against using discernment, and, and this isn't even a prohibition against addressing sin. This is a prohibition against avenging sin and pronouncing eternal condemnation. And we know that this is, a, this is the case simply just by reading the rest of the passage here. Jesus goes on to say in verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this is a really important clarification for us from the beginning of our time together this morning. Jesus doesn't forbid all judgment. Jesus is cautioning us against having a harsh standard of judgment. He warns us, he shows us here, it's really simple. Don't hold others accountable to a standard of judgment that you yourself would not want to be held accountable to. It's a very, very dangerous game to definitively pronounce God's judgment against another person because of our sin. And we would do very, very well to continually remember that as we pronounce condemnation against sinners, one day we too will stand before the just judge. We will give account, and Jesus warns us here, the measure by which you judge others, the standard against which you evaluate others, that is the same standard that the Lord will apply to us on the day of judgment. James warns us in James 2, 13, that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, I just wonder this morning, do we hold ourselves do we hold others accountable to standards that we ourselves would never want to be held accountable to? Do you quickly find yourself making wholesale judgments on the character of people based on just brief glimpses of their life? Are we guilty at times of putting ourselves in the seat of God, believing that we can judge what's going on in a person's heart and what the motives are behind all of their action? 
Do you wrongly assume people's motives? Judgment will be without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And Jesus reminds us the measure of judgment that we use will be measured back to us. I worked at a construction job my first summer uh, as I graduated high school before I started college. And so I was helping uh, frame uh, log cabins up in the Western um, North Carolina mountains. And, and so I learned a really important uh, proverb, construction proverb, when it comes to cutting wood uh, pretty early on in this job. Whenever you're going to cut a piece of wood, how many times should you measure at least? Always measure twice right? Measure twice, cut once. That's what my boss was, was always telling me. And so I had to learn this the hard way, like many of us probably have. Like, no, I feel like I got a really good measurement there. And then you go and make your cut and you come back and suddenly you, you can't use the piece of wood. It, it's better to be conservative in this. It's better to not cut enough and then go back, have to make a second cut than it is to cut too much and suddenly have a piece of wood that you can no longer use. And so there's a really simple principle from this that I think applies to what Jesus is showing here today when it comes to the measure of our judgments. In the same way that you before you cut a piece of wood, you measure at least twice. Whenever we're making our judgments of others, friends, we should measure at least twice. Before we make that cut, before we make that pronouncement, before we judge their character, before we judge their motives, before we make wholesale judgments based on just one or two actions here and there, Jesus calls us to be people who are cautious in our judgments. And he reminds us that the same measure that we use against others will be measured back to us. As followers of Christ, it should be extremely rare for us friends to cut too much. It should be rare. But I fear for many of us, overcutting is the norm. And we need to be reminded of the words of Jesus this morning that if we judge others harshly, we ourselves will be harshly judged. Jesus goes on to clarify this in verses three through five. This is maybe his most famous sermon illustration of all time. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus shows us that, that we shouldn't judge others harshly or we'll, be other, or we'll be harshly judged. Second, Jesus shows us don't address the sins of others until you've addressed your own. That's the starting point. Again, this might be the most famous illustration that Jesus has, has ever given. And if you think about it, the concept here is almost as absurd as it is silly. You know, I think sometimes we forget that the people who are walking with Jesus and living during this time, people in Scripture, you know, they weren't, they weren't wooden, impersonal people who never laughed at stuff and, and had no personalities. Like, like, I would have to imagine for the people on the mountainside that day, this was a pretty silly illustration to hear. Like Jesus is just laying this out for him. He said, listen, your brother's got a speck in their eye. You, you really don't have much business dealing with that if you've got a giant log sticking out of yours. Like, that's gonna be very, very difficult. Like, you, you just, you kind of see it and you're fixated on it. Maybe you just, uh, you, just, you just got a little something here, but you're probably actually causing them more harm by smacking them in the face with the giant log that's sticking out of your face. And it's as absurd as it is silly. I mean, just think about this. Like, if you have impaled yourself through the eye with a spear, you probably shouldn't be concerned about your neighbor who got a little bit of sawdust in theirs. Like, we're walking around with this giant, giant obstruction sticking out of our heads, and we're looking at our neighbor like, you wouldn't have that speck in your eye if you were wearing your safety goggles like you were supposed to. It's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. And Jesus uses this as an illustration to show us as ridiculous as it is to talk to somebody about a speck of dust in their eye, when you got a giant log sticking out of yours, it's even more ridiculous to, to condemn somebody else's sin when you yourself are living in sin. 
He calls us, you address your own sin before you go and address the sins of others. I want to clarify something here because, you know, at this point in time, that this is where I think some of us unfortunately become guilty of overcorrection. Jesus says when we do this, we're guilty of hypocrisy. You, you might remember a few weeks ago when we look at Matthew chapter 6, the way Jesus used the word hypocrisy there was to talk about someone who would do sometimes even the right thing but from the wrong motivation. Somebody who said they were doing something for God's glory, but really they were doing it for their own glory. Jesus calls that hypocrisy. But here in chapter 7, he uses this word hypocrite much more in line with the way you and I tend to use it. He uses it to address somebody who is saying that one person should not do something while they themselves are guilty of committing that exact same offense. And again, here's where I fear some of us are guilty of overcorrecting. We take the words of Jesus, we hear his warning against dealing with other sins before we've dealt with our own sin, and here's how many of us will respond. We'll say, well, yeah, I mean, sure, that person, they're living in in open, unrepentant sin, they're walking out of step with God's word, they're living in rebellion against God, but this is what some of us will do. So, you know, I I got my own junk going on in my own life, and so I just, I don't really feel like it's my place to, to address that. And friends, if we're not really, really careful about this, Satan will use that as a false humility that actually makes us comfortable with sin. Because this is what we start to do. We're afraid to deal with the sins of others because we have our own sin, which is good. Jesus shows us is good. But do we then in turn go and deal with our sin? The point Jesus is making here is not you should never address the sins of other people. That's not at all the point that Jesus is making. The point he's making is you should absolutely address the sins of other people, but not until you've dealt with your own first. He's not saying that we never speak truth into each other's lives. He's not saying that we can never hold each other accountable. And I I fear many of us, if we're not really, really careful, what we'll end up walking in is this, this kind of false humility. This kind of woe is me. Nobody's perfect. I got my own junk going on in my life. So what business do I have speaking to life of others? Yes and amen. Let's exercise caution. But whenever we see sins in the lives of others and in our own heart, our solution isn't to run. Our solution is to repent. It's to come to the Lord. It's to deal with that sin and then in turn to go and deal with the sins of our brothers and sisters. It's not that we never call others out on their sin. Jesus just calls us to do it cautiously. And here's the game that I think Satan sometimes plays with us is that, that we'll, he'll get us to this place where we feel like because we at some point in time in our lives have struggled with a sin, that we're suddenly completely unqualified to help others as they struggle with their sin. And so, so it could be a, a number of different things. Let's say at some point in time in your life, you, you've struggled with sexual sin or you have struggled with unforgiveness. You've struggled with things like gossip and slander. You struggle with materialism. You struggle with pride. You struggle with greed. You struggle with jealousy, whatever it is. And you see somebody else living in these things and you think, well, you know, I too used to deal with that. So I really have no business speaking to that person's life. But friend, if you are redeemed in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, been forgiven of your sin, you're maybe the most qualified person to speak truth into that person's life. You can sit down with that brother or sister and be able to say, listen, I know what you're going through right now. I know what you're dealing with and I know what excuses you're making because I used to make all those same excuses myself and I'm telling you because I love you that the sin you are living in right now is absolutely not worth the consequences that are gonna come with it. And and love to, to plead with them to come to Christ, to come back to Christ, to walk in step with God's holiness and walk in step with his word, to call them as someone who loves them to repentance and faith and back in line with who God's calling them to be. Not only are we not unqualified, listen, if you are forgiven in Christ, you might be the most qualified. 
to come alongside those who are struggling with the very same things that you yourself have struggled with. But we do this carefully. We do this cautiously. We don't do this you know, without giving thought to this. We're very, very cautious in our approach with this. And this is the, the, the spirit of what the Apostle Paul expresses in Galatians 6.1. He says it like this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so someone's caught in sin, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? What's that say? Gentleness. You yourself should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then here's the warning. He says, keep watch on yourself. Why? Lest you too be tempted. And so again, it's not that we don't confront it. It's not that we don't address it. It's not that we don't hold others accountable. We just have to be very, very careful in the way that we do these things. And so follow the progression here. Jesus shows us, listen, deal honestly with your sin and deal gently with others' sins. And as you're doing these things, never, ever, ever make the mistake of believing that you're not capable of committing the very sins that you're addressing. So we do this truthfully, we do this directly, but we also do this graciously and we do this gently. The message here is not don't address the sins of others. The message is not don't address the sins of the world. The message is this, don't address the sins of others until you've addressed your own. But friends, once we've addressed our own, let's hold one another accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse six, Jesus shifts gears a little bit here. He says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Again, verse six, Jesus is shifting gears here a little bit. Now, I wanna take us back to where we started. Let's go back to that word judge that Jesus uses in verse one and talk about what it can mean. So we've seen so far that it can mean to either analyze or evaluate, or it can mean to condemn or avenge. And so far, Jesus has really talked about judgment in the second sense. He's, he's talked about judgment in the sense of condemning people and avenging sin. And he tells us, that's not what you're supposed to do. So you, you could almost rephrase verse one to say, instead of judge not that you be not judged, you could almost rephrase verse one to say, condemn not that you be not condemned. That that's the spirit of what Jesus is getting across. But now he starts to shift gears to talk about judgment in the first sense, which is to analyze or evaluate. So he's warned us against three dangers. He says, listen, don't judge others harshly or you yourself will be harshly judged. He warns us again, don't address the sins of others until you've addressed your own. Third and finally this morning, Jesus shows us, don't neglect the use of sound judgment as you avoid becoming judgmental. Let me just say that one more time because there, there's a really important nuance here this morning, church, that we, we just can't miss. Don't neglect the use of sound judgment as you avoid becoming judgmental. I wanna make sure we're following here this morning. There's a difference between exercising judgment and being judgmental. You following what I'm saying there? Like there's a difference between these two. Using sound judgment that's about analyzing and evaluating. We are called to do this as followers of Jesus. We're encouraged, we're commanded to do this as followers of Jesus. Being judgmental, though, on the other side, is about being condemning and vengeful. We're not encouraged to do that as followers of Christ. So condemnation is a big no. Condemnation's a big no, but discernment is a big yes. So we don't suspend the use of sound judgment in the name of not wanting to be judgmental. In the first century culture, both dogs and pigs were just considered uh, filthy and unclean animals. So don't, don't think of dogs in this context like the domesticated you know, pets we have that we love more than our kids today, right? Like that's, we have a very different understanding of dogs and pets 
uh, than, than they had in the first century here. Uh, they're wild scavengers who are considered filthy pests, and so once again, Jesus just draws out a pretty clear illustration. He says, you, you don't give what is holy to that which is filthy. You don't give what is precious to, to pigs who are just gonna trample on what's there. You know, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus clarifies that the pearl of greatest value is the gospel of the kingdom. This is what we find in Matthew 13, 45 and 46. I love this passage. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. The gospel is that pearl of great value. It's that truth that when we find it, we will gladly leave everything else behind. We'll sell everything that we have because we have found something far greater in its place. And so Jesus, what he's encouraging here is that we exercise sound judgment in what we do with that pearl. How we present it to others, how we lay that message, the gospel of the kingdom out for others. So you can just, just pull all this together here. Matthew 7, 6, Jesus is addressing really our evangelistic efforts. He's talking about exercising judgment. So here's the tension that you and I have to live in. Here's the tension that Jesus is calling us to live in. On the one hand, we have to be very, very careful that we don't pronounce harsh judgments against others who are living in sin. But on the other hand, we are to exercise sound judgment in determining who should get the best focus of our evangelistic efforts. So, so that's a tension here. We have to be very, very careful that we avoid pronouncing harsh judgment against people because of their sin. And at the same time, we have to be very, very careful that we focus our evangelistic efforts in the right places. We understand as we share the gospel that some might hear the gospel, they might not immediately receive it, but you sense that they're humble and they're open and they're receptive and they're willing to hear more. But others might hear the gospel and immediately reject it. And they'll respond with hostility and they're unwilling to hear and what Jesus is calling us to do here is exercise wisdom, exercise sound judgment in discerning which type of person are you dealing with in the moment. Um, a few years, a few months ago, excuse me, we, we had to put down our family cat of, of 11 years. And so, um, and uh, we, we, a few weeks later, have friends here in the church whose cat had kittens. I think there's like five of us in the church who all have like the, uh, one of the kittens from, from this particular litter. So this was a few weeks after we had to have our cat put down. Um, I'm not at all a cat person. I, I'm a dog person. Emily is a cat person. Um, and so naturally, across 12 years of marriage, we've compromised twice and gotten a cat. And um, guys, that's just how it works. Like if you just, you just, if you just understand that, that and, and just, just understand that your life is gonna be so much better if you just will just say yes to pretty much everything your wife wants, then um, you'll, you'll really enjoy uh, the life that you live. And so, so uh, we, we got this little kitten. Her name's Miley. Again, I'm not a cat person. I like our cats. Okay, I've taught them to play fetch like dogs, and that, that's just kind of how I've, I've helped build that bridge across. And, 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 and so, you know, when we got Miley, she was only like five weeks old. And, you know, mama wasn't really taking care of him, so we had to be very, very careful as we brought her home to make sure that she was being fed the right way, that she was getting the nutrition that she needed. And, and so what's happened over the course of three months is, you know, like any domesticated pet, you start to build a relationship of trust. Um, and, and guys, when, when her food bowl goes empty, it is the most pitiful thing you would ever see in your life. Like she'll, she'll lay on the floor, like right near our laundry room where her bowl is and she'll cry and she'll come lay on your lap. And, and she was kind of giving me like a love tap the other day when she was hungry, but she ended up like scratching me down the side of my head. And she just, it's just so pathetic when, when she's hungry. And so she'll go rattle her bowl around, letting you know that it's empty. And, and, and so sure enough, anytime you go in our laundry room to the cabinet door where the, where the, ca the cat food bag is, She'll hear that bag wherever she is in the house, upstairs, downstairs, she'll come sprinting in. 
And when she sees that food bag, she just loves all over you. I mean, she's rubbing up against your legs and your arms and she's got this, this helpless little whimper and you can barely pour it into her bowl because she's just so ready to, to jump on and eat it. And she loves you for feeding her. She loves you for it. And, and that's the, the relationship of trust that we build with our pets, right? Like I provide you food, you enjoy the food, we all love each other and we get along. But you know, it would be extremely foolish of me to go to the marsh right behind our house and apply the same logic I've applied to Miley to an alligator that lives in the marsh. <laughs> to think that by feeding it, I'm somehow gonna build a relationship of trust and that it's gonna love me and it's gonna brush up against my leg. And it's gonna lay on the ground all pitifully if I don't give it food. Those things are not gonna happen. You know, we, this is the mantra we repeat in the low country all the time, right? A fed gator is what? It's a dead gator. Because when you start to feed alligators, unlike our cat, <laughs> you start to feed alligators, they're not gonna show you affection, they're gonna show you aggression. And so this, this illustration breaks down a little bit. It works for my cat, maybe not for yours, but, but this is what Jesus is calling us to do in exercising discernment. What we understand is we share the gospel, we have to ask the question, am I feeding a kitten or am I feeding an alligator? Is this person going to appreciate, even if they don't immediately agree with it, is there gonna be humility? Is there gonna be an openness? Over time, will they show me love and affection? Will a relationship of trust be built? be built with this person as I share the gospel message or when I share it to them over time, since I'm not doing, even with good intentions, what they think I should be doing, are they gonna come back and attack me for it? So Jesus is calling us exercise sound judgment. Exercise sound judgment. We need to understand who we're speaking to whenever it is we're sharing the gospel. Jesus disciples his disciples in this way. He shows them, like he prepares them for these types of responses whenever they go out doing the work of evangelism. This is from Matthew 10, verses 11 through 14. Jesus tells his disciples, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And he warns of coming judgment. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So what's Jesus saying here? What's Jesus saying here? Let's say you share the gospel with someone and they reject it. Is Jesus giving us permission if somebody rejects the gospel to say, well, you're going to hell anyway, so who cares? That's not at all what Jesus is saying. That's not at all what he's saying. It's not even close. That's playing God. That's being judgmental. We put ourselves in the position of God, in the seat of God. We're pronouncing the ultimate condemnation. We can certainly warn of his coming judgment against unrepentant sinners, but we remember that judgment is his and not ours. That's his place and not ours. So what do we do? Jesus says, let your peace return to you. Shake the dust off of your feet. We exercise sound judgment without being judgmental. We recognize that our evangelistic efforts might be better spent in another place towards those who are more receptive. The gospel, Jesus says, is a pearl. It's a pearl of great value. So we have to recognize it for the priceless treasure that it is and prevent it from being trampled under the feet of others. But, but understand, church, that this is what I think we, we constantly have to come back to because you know, if you're like me, like, there's probably a lot of fear in sharing the gospel. That there's the fear at times of rejection. There's the fear of people not understanding. There's the fear of people viewing you as judgmental, as someone who's condemning of them. And so oftentimes this hinders our evangelistic efforts. But I've said it many times before, I'm gonna say it again for us here today. We have to understand that our only failure in sharing the gospel is our failure to share the gospel. If we share the good news and somebody rejects it, that is not on us. 
If we have faithfully, lovingly, graciously laid out the pearl of great value and instead of them taking it for what it is, gladly selling all that they have, taking hold of the pearl, instead they trample it under feet, that is not on us, that's on them. And we can trust that, that even if we don't immediately see it, this is what I think we struggle with sometimes because we are such an instant gratification culture. Like if somebody doesn't immediately get it, we just get so frustrated and we think that we failed. That's not how the gospel always works. We have to understand that sometimes with people it takes time, it takes patience. Did it not take time and patience with us? Did it not take some of us years upon years, decades upon decades, we had to hear the gospel 50,000 times before it finally broke through our hard hearts? And if God was generous and patient and gracious with us, should we not be generous and patient and gracious with others? You know, I'm just kidding. This is probably more for the spiritual uh, parents and grandparents among us this morning. How many of you are familiar with the famous Bible teacher from the early to mid-1900s in particular, uh, Vance Havner? How many of you are familiar with the name Vance Havner? Show of hands. Awesome. So if you're not, you should be. Just a wonderful Bible teacher and, and preacher. This is one of his most famous statements for all time. His, his work was such a gift to the church for a generation. One of his most famous statements. He said, let it never be forgotten that although we may do nothing about the word we hear, the word will do something to us. The same sun melts ice and hardens clay and the word of God humbles or hardens the human heart. Church, we have to understand every single time we hear this gospel message, it's doing something to us. The gospel's never just going in one ear out the other. You sit in a worship gathering among believers and the gospel is faithfully proclaimed you never got nothing out of the message, whether you think you did or not. The gospel is always doing a work in our hearts. Either the gospel is humbling us or it's hardening us. Either we hear the gospel and it still blows our mind and it humbles us. We hear it and we are just blown away once again by the fact that there is this God, the God of the universe, who created us to be in relationship with him, we fractured that relationship, we rejected him, we rebelled against him, we deserved his wrath, we deserved his judgment, we deserved his condemnation. And in spite of deserving all of that, God was rich in mercy and he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. He came to this earth, he freely and, and, and patiently and graciously lived the perfect life, sinless life you and I could not live. He died the death on the cross that you and I deserve. He rose again from the grave in victory. He freely shares that victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave for all who will call on his name in faith and repent and believe. Either we hear that message and it just blows our minds or our hearts harden against him. It either humbles us or it hardens us. We hear that message for the, the 10,000th time and we say, heard it a million times before, tell me something else that's new. Friend, that's a hard heart. That's a hard heart. Or you hear that, you're not a follower of Jesus, you say, I, I think I'm good enough. I'm good enough in my own estimation. I'm good enough, I could earn heaven on, on my own. Friend, that, that's pride, that is a hard heart. It's a hard heart. We hear the gospel message. We come to the communion table like we do every single week as a church family. We have open, unrepentant sin in our life that we know we have absolutely no intention of changing when we leave this building and yet we still come to the table and act like it's no big deal. Friend, that's a hard heart. And scripture warns us that when we do these things, we, we are storing up wrath. We are storing up judgment against ourselves in the day to come. 
When you hear the gospel message, it's doing one of two things. Either it is softening your heart to love the Lord more deeply, or it is hardening your heart that you would reject the Lord more fully. The gospel's never doing nothing. The word of God is never doing nothing. Dormant as it may seem, ineffective as it may feel to you in that particular moment, the gospel is always doing this work in our hearts. You know, we, we play this really silly game sometimes. We, we, we're proud. We don't like to be confronted in our sins. And so someone uh, confronts us in our sin and, and, and instead of humbling towards the Lord of repentance, we harden against the Lord in, in, in rebellion Somebody addresses our sins, confronts our sins, and, and what do we fire back with? Hey, Jesus says not to judge. Jesus says not to judge. No, nobody's perfect. Who do you think that you are speaking this, this into my life? Only God can judge me. Do we really understand what we're saying when we say something like that? Like, it, it is not just a weird, it is a very, very dangerous game that we would cite the future judgment of God as an excuse to overlook our present sin. Only God can judge me. That, that's okay. That, that's good that we understand that. But friend, please do understand, he will judge you. We will stand before him in judgment. That This is going to happen. I can't pronounce that condemnation over you. No one in this congregation can. No follower of Jesus can, no, no matter how prolific their, their life seems to be. Only God holds this place of ultimate condemnation. And one day the just judge will carry out the judgment. It's, it's going to happen. And so the question we have to be asking ourselves is, man, am I prepared for that moment? Am I prepared to stand before that judge and give account? And Jesus just warns us. He cautions us all through this passage here of a few different things. He warns us that, listen, mercy will be without judge, or judgment will be without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. For those of us who are followers of Christ, that should humble us. Are we holding others accountable to a higher standard than we want to be held accountable by the just judge on the last day? But it's not just that judgment will be without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Scripture shows us clearly again that judgment will be without mercy to the one who rejects mercy. Have you understood the mercy that has been poured out for you in Jesus Christ? What the gospel message tells us is that every single one of us was deserving of judgment. Every single one of us was worthy only of condemnation, that we have no righteousness of our own. Every single one of us deserve to endure the eternal punishment and consequences for our sins. As R.C. Sproul said, sin is cosmic treason against God, and we've all committed it. And yet when we most received judgment, or deserved judgment, God in his grace sent us mercy. He sent us Jesus. And so I just ask you as we close together this morning, as you hear the gospel message today, is your heart being humbled or is your heart being hardened? Is the word of God melting ice or is it hardening clay? Have you been declared innocent of your sin by the just judge of the universe or are you going to be declared guilty on the last day? Judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy and judgment will be without mercy to the one who rejects mercy. But God in his mercy has spared us of judgment through the giving of of his son. And so the invitation for you today is that you would see that mercy and you would live free of any fear of the judgment that is to come. We you bow your heads with me as we close? Father, we thank you for this precious truth that when we were most deserving of judgment, instead you poured out mercy. So Father, guard us against people 
who make judgments without mercy because that's not who you are. You extended mercy to us when we were least deserving of this. So Lord, as we are so prone to fixate on the faults and the flaws and the mistakes and the shortcomings of others, help us to stare first into the reality of our own sin. Guard us against being people who deal with our own sins gently while we deal with the sins of others harshly. And help us to remember that in the worst moment that we found ourselves in, you dealt gently with us. And you gave us mercy when it was totally undeserved. So Lord, help us to be measured in our judgments. God, help us to be honest about our own sin. Help us to be people who are discerning. Help us to exercise sound judgment. That even in the face of gospel rejection, we would not try to take your place on the throne and pronounce the judgment that belongs only to you. That we would guard the pearl of great value, that we would let our peace return to us, that we would brush off our feet and we would move on and trust that your word is still working even when we're not. So God, as we come to this table this morning, we we ask that you help us once again to see your mercy, to see your grace, to see your kindness when we were deserving of only judgment.